0: My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to uh, the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8 this morning. I'll give you a bit to, to get there. Let's give these guys a hand. Wouldn't that? This is great. So thankful for all these guys. It's a real, it's a real gift to be able to draw a group of people to a sacred place. And they do that for us each week. It's a it's a real gift and a grace to this church. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is typically one of those, uh, um, among a, a handful of favorite or most memorable psalms to many of us, somewhat like Psalm 23. It's a psalm that sticks out. One writer says that if the whole book of psalms was considered a mountain range of poetry, then Psalm 8 would surely be... One of its peaks. Another writer, professor at Union Seminary who really devoted his life to Hebrew wisdom literature uh, in the book of Psalms. He, he writes, Psalm 8 proves itself to be one of the greatest poems in the Hebrew hymnal. C.S. Lewis referred to Psalm 8 as an exquisite, an exquisite verse. And of course it is. It's an amazing psalm. It's a, it's a short psalm. It's only nine verses and yet it deals with, it deals with the uh, complexity of who we are and, and, and why we were created. Um how God relates to us, and, and as, as we'll see, even how God makes right what we've messed up in the world. So let's read, this, let's read this short poem together, a psalm of David, Psalm 8. It says there in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David says, when I look at your heavens, I'm I'm looking up, when I I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? He says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And then David ends right where he begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, we confess that with David this morning. God, we confess that your name is majestic in all the earth. And God, we thank you that you've, you've spoken to that question that David asked. What is man? Who are we that you are mindful of us? God, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll, you'll see there at the center of this poem in verse 4 is this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The, the son of man that you, that you care for him. The, the scene seems to be uh, David, maybe even as a young shepherd in his, in his father's fields after a long day of tending his sheep, laying back in the fields, looking up at the sky, this pitch black sky dotted with thousands of stars. And he's looking up and he's like, God, your, your name is so maj- You're so majestic in all the earth. God, your, your glory dwarfs this endless universe. You make the planets with your fingers, and yet, and yet you're mindful of us. You care for us. And David asks, who are, who are we? Who are we? What, what's our, in some ways he's asking, what's our, what's our purpose here? What are we doing here? What are, what, are, what are we for? That's one of the central questions here, and that's, that's a universal question. Question, that's a universal ache, this, this wondering sort of what are we all about. One writer, Thomas Huxley, wrote in uh, 1863, he said, this is the question of all questions for humanity. The problem which lies beyond all the others and is in fact more interesting than any of them is that uh, the determination of man's place in nature, relation to the cosmos, where do we fit in? Where does our race come from? What sorts of limits are set to our power over nature or to nature's power over us? To what goal are we striving? He says, these, these are the problems which present themselves afresh, anew, and undiminished to every human being on earth. We're all asking and aching that question, who are we? What are we all about? You may know that, that Thomas Huxley, the, the, the quote that I just read from, he was known as uh, Darwin's bulldog. That was sort of his nickname. He was, he was one of the early uh, and staunch supporters and advocates for Darwin's theory of evolution. He, in some ways, helped really popularize Darwin's theory of evolution. And, and, and he and Darwin had their own answer to this question what is man? That's not a very satisfying answer, but they, they had an answer to this, as he says, question of all questions, what is man? I think he was right about the importance of this question, but his answer, I think, is pretty disappointing. Dar- Darwin wrote that, that man is the most efficient animal ever to emerge. That's not a very ringing endorsement, right? The most, the most efficient animal ever to emerge. He says, man, in his, this is Darwin, man in his arrogance thinks himself a great work, worthy of the place of a deity, but more humble, I think, and truer is to consider him just created from the animals. In fact, Darwin says, there is no fundamental difference between man and animals in their ability to feel pleasure or pain or happiness or misery. Maybe we could even add meaning. He says, we must acknowledge, however, as it seems to me, that man, with all his noble qualities, still bears in his bodily frame this indelible stamp of his lowly origin. So their answer, this is a very naturalistic answer, uh, a very atheistic question, answer to the question, what is man? Darwin would simply answer, he, he is a noble beast. He is, he, is man, he is man upright, right? Driven by passion, driven by instinct, with no real moral boundary, no ultimate purpose. And though, of course, uh, some, some people act as though they are beasts. Some people behave as beasts. Some people even share this view of humanity, this naturalistic view of humanity that thinks that we are essentially just animal upright. I I hope and I think there's something more to us, right? I think we get a sense that there's something more to us, that we're more than what Darwin says that we are, noble beasts. Now that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum... Another answer to this question, what is man, could be that, that man is his own God. That man, man is sovereign over him. He's, he's much more the man, animal. He, he's, he's like a God. He's sovereign. He is the center of the universe. And you can see both extremes, right? On one side, you have self-debasement. On the other side, you have self-worship. On, on one end, man is an animal. On the other end, man is a god, on one side, man is really not enough, and on the other end, he's, he's too much. There's a tension here. I saw uh, this week that the word selfie was uh, in, inducted into the Oxford English Dictionary in the year 2013. So <laughs> a fairly new word, but it was, it was brought into the dictionary after a, a 17,000... Percent increase in usage in the English language, right? It actually made itself to to word of the year in 2013. The word "selfie." There's something there's something about our our addiction to self-expression, right? We we love, apparently we love talking about and taking selfies, showing the world who we are, sort of putting ourselves at the center of things. And, and you know, nothing against <laughs> nothing against selfies, right? But I, I think I think it I think this obsession with self-assessment or self-expression or self-actualization, it, it really betrays our addiction to ourselves, that we think of ourselves as the most important thing in the universe. And for many of us, all of our efforts and, and all of our energy, all of our, all of our investment, whether it's financial investment or investments of our time or, or, or otherwise, so much of our lives is driven by and we hope results in Self-promotion. We're trying to promote ourselves financially, relationally, socially, right? So much of what we do speaks to how we worship ourselves. And I, I say worship uh, intentionally to mean that, that, that we have organized, many of us have organized everything in such a way um, as to promote ourselves to the center of things or the top of things. We value maybe supremely our own importance. But David offers another way. Scripture offers us another way. Not, not, not self-debasement, not self-worship, neither beast nor God, something else entirely. When David asks this rhetorical question in Psalm 8, what is man? He, he reflects and he answers, and you can see there in verse 5. He says that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You can see the both sides, right? You've made, him, you've made him lower than the heavenly beings, and yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That language there in Hebrew, uh, the phrase... Um, lower than heavenly beings, that, that, that word heavenly beings, actually one word, the word Elohim, which may be familiar to some of you, uh, it's most often translated as God, right? So in Genesis, uh, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Most, most commentators would agree that, that what, what the scripture is saying here is that, that, that he has made, that God has made us he, less than God, a little lower than God, but still in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, made in, in, in Imago Dei is the technical term, this theological term, made in his image, the image of God. Scripture teaches us that we are, not, we are not beasts, although some of us act like it. We are not driven by our appetite only. Some of us are. Some of us act like that, right? Part of what Psalm 8 is doing is helping us get to know ourselves and helping us to understand who we really are and who we were created to be. We're not, we're not beasts. We're not, we're not just exclusively driven, driven by our appetites By our instinct, but nor are we gods. We're not all knowing, we're not all sovereign, we're not all important in this universe. We we are created uniquely, we are a part of creation, unlike God. But scripture says we are over creation, unlike the beasts. It helps us understand ourselves. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. We're treasured uniquely among everything that he's made. We're valued. We're set apart as image bearers and stewards. You can see how how this this psalm, as we understand it, as we understand what the Bible says about us, what it teaches us about who we are, it it can lift us from despair. and, And it can also protect us against pride and arrogance. I was telling them this morning at the earlier service that I was, uh, I'm, I'm helping co-lead this uh, support group for college students in Houston who are struggling with, with various types of mental illnesses, uh, and we're working through this curriculum, and, and the first, the first uh, class of this curriculum that we're working through was on identity, it was, and it was, it was a Christian-based, faith-based program, and, and the first step in this program is sort of understanding our identity, and there were just this whole page of verses about who we are, who we've been created to be, We're not beasts, but we're not gods either. It helps us understand who we are. Some of us, some of us struggle. Some of us struggle to uh, come to terms with with how God's created us in His image, with how valued we are. You're valued. You're, you're, You're created specially, uniquely, wonderfully made. We deny our own inherent dignity and value as God's image bearers. And others of us, though, some of us, we struggle with, with pride and arrogance because we think of ourselves as more highly than we ought. We put ourselves in the center of the universe. And God says, you're going you're to miss it on both points. Psalm 8 is a psalm about Identity. It helps us understand who we are. It helps us understand where we fit in God's created order. The the word I think about is that it helps helps right-size us, right? God says, you've, you've been created in my image, and you've given this job to do, to reflect me to the world. David says, there's this beautiful phrase that, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? Consider that for a moment. Consider the truth of, of that passage, that, that David is considering God's glory. What are we, God? He understands his frailty. He understands his sin. He understands his mistakes. He says, what, are, what, are, what, are you, what are we that you are mindful of us? What are we that you care for us? That idea of being mindful uh, is that God is, is drawn to, God pursues the object of his mindfulness, right? So it's not just that God abstractly sort of thinks about us, and some of us only think about God in the abstract. We sort of think of him out there as opposed to thinking that God is, God is close to us. He has drawn near to us. In fact, he's given us a job to do. Not, not only does he create us in his image and move toward us with love and care, not only does he meet us in our suffering, comforts us in our distress, he, he sets us apart as stewards over the rest of his creation. Many of us struggle with this, with this idea about, who we are and what we do, because we either make, you either make our relationships or our jobs or, or, or our stuff more important, that we're just trying to suck all the, the pleasure out from those things for our own uh, selfish gain, we act like animals and we feel unfulfilled, or we make those things, we make our own lives and all of our stuff of supreme importance and we wonder still why we're not satisfied. God says, don't miss it. Don't forget it. You you are created to reflect my glory to the world. To to bring my goodness to the world. To shepherd my world. To see yourself as God's agent. David's echoing the story of Genesis here. In in Genesis, God says, uh, in in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it says, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He's saying, I'm I'm putting you as my image bearers out. I want you to bring goodness. I want you to bring beauty. I want you to bring truth into all the pockets of the world. Every living thing. God saw that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You you may remember the story of creation. When God creates everything in the universe, he says, this is good, and this is good, and this is good. But then he he creates man and woman, and what does he say? It's so good. Unlike everything else in creation, they are my image bearers out in the world. We're reflecting God's glory in in our our holiness, our personal holiness, and our relationships with one another, in our work, how we contribute to flourishing in the world. You can see that really even more than about us, uh, more than about man's identity, Psalm 8 is really and ultimately about God and his majesty. James Boyce, one one writer, he says, The most striking feature of Psalm 8 is this description of man and his place in the created order. But the psalm does not begin talking about man. It begins and ends with a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. This, This places men and women within a cosmic framework. It's a way of saying at the very beginning that we will never really understand ourselves until we understand our creator. We struggle with our identity. We struggle with what this world is all about. We wonder why we're dissatisfied. You can see verses 1 and 9, they're they're the same. David repeats himself, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These two verses serve as a kind of frame for this whole passage and say this is what the psalm is really all about. It's about the Lord's majesty. It's about the Lord's glory. It's It's about how the Lord uses the weakest things in the world To show his power. Right? That's that's really the theme in the whole psalm, right? David says, that this is a picture of God, of David considering God's glory, of considering how his his majesty far exceeds uh, the bounds of the universe. And then he's acknowledging that that, that God is so powerful that he can even use, out of the mouths of babies, he'll crush his enemies. You see that? David's looking up at the stars. He's saying, he, he creates the moon and the stars with his fingertips. It's like a game to him. That's how powerful he is. And yet still, he is mindful of us. He's mindful of you. This is the God that we're dealing with. The word for man that's used there in verse four is actually a a specific word uh, meant to highlight man's frailty. Frailty man's weakness, man as mortal. So, so the, the whole idea here is that, that God is so majestic, that God is so powerful, that God so, has so much glory that he uses the weakest things to demonstrate how powerful he is. Just with baby talk, he crushes his enemies. This is an amazing God that we serve. And it's important, it's important for us to understand who God is before we can understand who we are, Right? And and the poem looks back to, it looks back at creation and says God has created us with a purpose. He's created us for something and yet we go around acting like animals or thinking of ourselves as gods. And we're never satisfied. We're never content. We always struggle. You know, part of what the psalm is doing, the psalm is looking back at Genesis and seeing the, the, the purpose for which we were created. And yet, even as we read the psalm, we look at our own lives and we think we are really bad stewards, right? We are poor reflections of God's glory and God's mercy in this world, of God's holiness, of God's care for this world. I think we're we're, we're not we're not doing a great job at it, right? We, we because of our sin and because of our rebellion, we we've we're, we're ruined. We've got no hope of of accurately representing the goodness of God in the world. We're a broken reflection. St. Augustine talks about us where we have God's image, but that image has been smeared. We need a rescuer. We need salvation. We need need to be restored. In other words, as we look at the book of Psalms, uh, we're, we're sort of asking the question how is that true? If, if God says that, that we are to have, that He's created us to have dominion, it doesn't seem like we're doing a good job. How can we fulfill that calling as God's representatives? And, the, and you'll actually see in the, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is asking that same question. He's, the, the writer's looking at Psalm 8, and he, and he writes this in, Psalm, uh, in Hebrew 2, verse 8. It says, At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. How is all this making sense? Things don't seem to be working as they should be. Did God make a mistake using us? Or has he somehow undone the mess that we've created? Because the truth is we're often cruel. We're often careless. We, we hide when we sin. We isolate ourselves or we blame each other when we sin, just like Adam and Eve are often poor stewards of our, of our bodies, of our time, of our relationships, of our gifts, and certainly often poor reflections of God's character out in the world. These are the, the effects of sin and death in our lives. We can't make things right as much as we want to, right? If we're trying to find meaning in ourselves, if we're trying to find purpose in ourselves, if we're trying to understand who we are, all by ourselves, we'll never quite get it. The Apostle Paul, he quotes Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians. Let me, let me ask you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. I don't, I'm not gonna have this on the screen, but you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm gonna start in verse 21. And Paul, what Paul's doing here, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he's, he's giving us some insight on how how to resolve this problem? How, how, how do we resolve our inability to do what we're created to do? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, Paul's saying, For, for as by a man came death, by a man has now come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so Paul's, Paul's looking back at the story of creation And he's saying Adam is a sort of representative, that's how the New Testament uses this language, is that Adam is a sort of representative, and that Adam's sin and Adam's rebellion, we have now inherited that, all of us. And so we struggle under that burden. That's even part of what God says to Adam in Genesis 3, after the fall, after they sin and disobey God, when they do what they're not supposed to, God says to them, part of your curse in this life is that everything is going to be hard for you. Your work at the ground is going to produce, produce thorns and thistles for you. Your life is going to be a struggle. You're going to struggle to figure out what you were made for. There's this warning there, but there's also a, a blessing and a promise. But God says to Eve, one day, one day there's going to be a, a, a baby born that will crush the serpent's head. There's hope, but there's a struggle. And so Paul is looking at Adam. He says, just like in Adam, we all inherited the sin. We all inherited the consequence of the sin of death. So now also in Christ, we are made alive. In him, we can be made alive again. We can remember who we are. In each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ is the perfect man in the sense that Adam fell and ruined it for the rest of us. Christ succeeded and gave us all hope he made right what we've all messed up. He says, then comes the end when he, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, right? All the, all the sin that rules us, that entangles us, all the things that crush us, all that, all that burden, he has destroyed all of that. He's reclaimed it for us, and he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. He's quoting from Psalm 8, right? He's looking looking at Psalm 8 and saying, the only way this can make sense is if there's a better man. It takes a perfect man to make sense of all this. Jesus is that man. And he says, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. For God, and again, quoting Psalm 8, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Paul is saying, we've got a big problem. Alone in our sin, alone in our rebellion, if you're going to act like animals or you're going to think of yourself as a God, you are never going to make it. You have to understand that that your only hope of defeating, of overcoming this problem of sin, of overcoming this ultimate problem of death is to be found in Christ. Let me put this together for us. God has created us uniquely among all of his works we're not, we're, not, we're not God's ourselves, but we're created in God's image. We are, we are pushing into the world all of His goodness. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't take you very long to see um, you know, you can, you can open Facebook for about 30 seconds and realize we are poor reflections of God's glory, poor reflections of His grace to one another, poor reflections of His perfect wisdom, of His humility. We are not gods ourselves, but we are created in his image, commissioned to, to reflect his goodness out in the world. How are we doing in our jobs? How are we doing with our, our children or our spouses? How are we doing at school? How are we doing with our parents? Is it just all, are we just there to take, take, take like an animal? Or are we there thinking everything just revolves around us, that we are sovereign here? Or do we say, God, we need something better. We need need your strength to use us who are just so weak and fragile. Because in our sin, instead of reflecting your glory, instead of exercising dominion over, we can't even exercise dominion over ourselves, right? One writer says, I will never be able to rule myself unless I am ruled by God. Some of us feel that way. Some of us have spent a lot of years trying to rule ourselves and be sovereign over our lives. And realize in the end we just act like beasts. We've we've done a poor job exercising dominion over creation or exercising dominion over ourselves. And so in, in, in the end we just worship ourselves. We worship our stuff. We worship creation. We behave like animals. We think of ourselves as God. What we need is to be reclaimed and restored. We need to be redeemed and made new. We need to remember who we are. In the same way that we inherited this death from Adam, that, that Christ now in him, we found forgiveness, we found eternal life. He is that perfect man we've been waiting for. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, says, that "Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he, the Father, has left nothing outside of his control. We don't see everything yet. We don't see everything yet in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, you were created for something better than this. we 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 were created to rule and to worship We were created to to reflect our creator, to represent our creator in the world and bend our knee to the king. But our sin and our death have have crushed us. And and the writer of Hebrews is looking out and he's saying that somehow Jesus has solved our death problem. Jesus has solved our sin problem. He is, by the grace of God, he has tasted death for everyone. So that now we are in Christ, we are free from that power. In him, our identity is restored. We're not not animals, we're not gods. We're image bearers and stewards. Some of us this morning need to be reminded that we're not animals. Some of us need to be reminded that we were created for a sacred purpose. And there's some of us here who need to be reminded that we're not gods. We, 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 We try to live like gods, but we are bad gods over our own lives, right? We are poor substitutes. In fact, the, the more that we worship ourselves, the further away we are from experiencing our true identity. The more we place ourselves at the center of every single thing, actually further from center we are. All of us need to be reminded here that our calling to exercise dominion in this world means that we are to whatever you're doing, whether you're building, you're parenting kids, you're planting a garden. You're taking care of sick people. Right, whatever you're doing, we are, we, are, we are to shine God's glory into every corner of this world. When we talk about giving God glory, what we're saying is that we're, 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 make, we're, we're communicating to the world that what he says about himself is true. We're not trying to make him look better than he is. He doesn't need us to look good. He is good and perfect. But when we come into the world to glorify God, we're saying that what God says about how I spend my time and how I spend my money and how I use my body and the reasons that I work and all those those real things about me, I'm going to believe that what he says is actually true. That's glorifying him. It's saying that he knows what's best. That's what we're called to do, to bring that into every corner of the world until the whole, the whole world understands that his, his majesty covers the earth. And for us to come to terms with the, the, God, who, the God who created the moon and the stars with his fingertips, he's, he's the one who cares for us, who's with us in our suffering. He's given us a job to do. We have a job to do, church. You were made in the image of God. We need to be reminded who we are. I think we need to be reminded who we are, uh, maybe especially in this in this crazy season that we're all in. It's easy to lose ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of an election year, in the midst of uh, so much racial injustice, in the midst of midst of so much polarization. We're acting like everybody around us is an enemy. And we think we're smarter than everybody else. We act like animals. And God says, "Bring your job is to bring my beauty into the world, to bring my glory into the world, to bring my mercy into the world. Let's remember who we are, church. And you will, you will only find that in Christ. You'll understand how to be that man or woman that you were created to be in that perfect man of Jesus. Look to him this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this this task that you've called us to, to bring your goodness and glory into the world, to exercise dominion, God, to bring care to your creation. God, we confess how we've, we've dropped the ball so many times. But God, we thank you that you know us. You know us in our frailty. You know us in our weakness. And God, still you use us. God, be with us this week. I pray that you would call us to to your word. And that your spirit would lead us and guide us into truth. He would teach us. God, we love you. God, we thank you that you're a glorious God. God, we often make you small, but I pray that our eyes would be open to your majesty in the world and your care of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.